you find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you, if you still got it there uh, in your Bibles and inside your notice sheets, you'll see there's space for notes and an outline of where we're going. Now, for most people, the question of worship is a question of what we sing. But this morning, I want to show you that the question of worship is actually a much bigger question. In fact, it's really the biggest question that most people ask. Really, it's the question of, why am I here? Why did God put me on earth? What is my purpose? What is the reason for my existence? And I want to argue over the next few weeks that the reason for our existence... Our purpose here on earth is worship. More specifically, to worship the Lord, the triune God, the God of the Bible, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And this morning we're going to focus on the foundations of that worship. But before I get into that, let's just pause for a few moments to consider what we mean by worship. Because when we say it, different people get different things in their heads. I've got a few quotes for us to help. This is John Stott. He said, the worship of God is always a response to the word of God. Vaughan Roberts puts it like this. Worship never begins with us. It is always a response to the truth. It flows out of an understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And then John Piper, in his typical, needs a whole book to explain it, sentences... Worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. So putting all those things together, we're going to define worship this morning as what we do in response to God, especially God's word, what we do in response to God. That is what worship is. Now we'll tighten up that statement as we go through our series, but it gives us a start, what we're actually talking about. So it's not just singing, It's all that we do in response to God. So I want to say straight off that that does include singing, but the meaning in scripture is far, far broader. Now, I've been reading uh, Exodus with the boys in family Bible time. Now, the ESV has it slightly different, but the NIV has a verse in chapter 10 that always makes me smile. Uh, Exodus chapter 10, verse 26, you'll see it on the back of your notice sheet. Moses is told to go, uh, is asking to go, and Pharaoh says he can't go with his livestock. And Moses says, our livestock too must go with us, not a hoof is to be left behind. We have some use of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know how we are to use them to worship the Lord. The reason that always makes me smile is that if you think that worship is just about singing, you have to have some sort of singing cows uh, that are going with them. Now, I've heard of laughing cows, but singing cows, uh, not so much. So we'll see, actually, in the Bible, worship is much broader than singing. So as we look at the foundations of worship, please don't just keep thinking about this as singing and music. Think about it in terms of all that you do in response to God. Now, last point before we dig into our passage. The structure of this series is based on Vaughan Roberts' excellent book, True Worship. Uh, I thoroughly recommend it. Uh, the content, though, is only loosely based on it, so it's still worth reading if you can get hold of it. We're thinking about it more uh, in depth. I thought it better to declare it, though, because some people get a bit uh, uh, strange about sort of using other material. Um, but uh, there's going to be way more quotes than normal this week, but they won't be from Vaughan Roberts. They'll be from uh, all over the place. So bearing all that in mind, uh, let's think about our passage. And we start with a worship 
revolution. What we see in the passage that was read just before is nothing short of a worship revolution. What Jesus says to this unknown woman by the well in the backwater of Samaria is nothing short of a bombshell on everything that Jews and Samaritans believed about worship. This would change things for the rest of time. The problem is for us that this revolution took place long, long ago. We live in the brave new world of worship that Jesus ushered in. And yet the shadow of what was there before still lingers in churches up and down the land and all across the world, in fact. And just like with every revolution, there's been counter-revolutions that have started ever since. And we live with their legacy too, as we look at this question. What we need to do this morning is to be struck afresh by what Jesus is saying. So much of what we do, we just assume should be done because it's always been done like that. We need a new worship revolution in our hearts and in our lives. So what is it that Jesus said that was so revolutionary? Well, have a look with me again at verse 16 of chapter 4. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. If you have had five husbands, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Jesus here is talking to a Samaritan woman by a well. He's already said some shocking things about being able to give her living water so that she'll never thirst again. Now he moves the conversation on to husbands. She probably understandably wants to move the conversation on to something else. She wants to change the subject. So here you go, Jesus. Here's a theological dispute for you. Which mountain should we worship on? Jews had their temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, which God had ordained in the Bible. Samaritans had a temple on Mount Gerizim, which was a more famous mountain in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Those are the only parts of the Bible that the Samaritans accepted. The temple there had been set up in opposition to the temple in Jerusalem and had been an idolatrous site in the past. Now here's the thing, as the Samaritan woman asks the question, where should we worship, which is the right temple, what's the right answer? Well, the right answer is the Jerusalem temple, isn't it? That was the one place where God had specifically told them to worship. All the way through the Old Testament, kings are commended for knocking down rival sites of worship. So it's called high places, because usually they were on hills and mountains. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Verse 21. Believe me. Sorry, Jesus said, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Hang on a sec. What? Think about that for a second. Right from the time of Moses, right from the beginning of God's revelation, God's people have been instructed to worship in just one place. First it was the tabernacle, then it was the temple in Jerusalem. And this is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. There is only one place to worship. 
But Jesus says, no, that's going. It's not going to be on that mountain. Notice he doesn't say it will be on both. He says it will be on neither. The temple worship will stop. Now, of course, it does stop, doesn't it? The temple gets knocked down in 70 AD. But Jesus is talking about something more fundamental, something even more radical. By the time the temple is knocked down, says Jesus, it's already had its day. It was already over. The Romans did a demolition job on a building that, in God's economy, had already closed up shop years ago. So if it's not about the destruction of the temple, what is it about? Well, it's about the end of all holy places. Jesus is saying there's no longer, it's no longer about where you worship. It's not about where you worship, but how you worship. What he is declaring here is an end to holy places. So where we sit this morning, in this scout hut that used to be a church, and is now a church again, it's confusing. It's got climbing walls, a bit strange. Um, where we sit this morning, though, is not a holy place. And in a sense, that's easier for us, isn't it? Because we can sort of see that it's not. But even our church building behind Sainsbury's is not holy ground, so to speak of. Again, that's quite easy because it looks like a scout book. But even a more traditional church building is not a particular holy place, nor is a cathedral or a temple. It's not that we worship nowhere, it's that we can worship everywhere. What he's talking about here really is an end to the sacred secular divide. Let me explain what I mean. What Jesus is saying here is that the sacred and secular are no longer split along geographical lines. There's not a place that you go to now that is holier than another place. It doesn't matter where we are, we can worship anywhere. In the kitchen, in the workplace, in the bathroom. Remember that worship is our response to God in everything that we do. So I'm not just saying that you can sing in the shower, though that's true. What I'm saying is that geography no longer matters when it comes to worship. So sometimes you get that question asked of you, don't you? Where do you worship? Well, the correct answer in a way is anywhere and everywhere. That's the right answer, isn't it? But imagine that you were a Jew or a Samaritan being told this. What? No more temple? Where, where then? It's so ingrained in their minds. This is all we've ever known. What about all the festivals that go with those things? But Jesus here is, is ending that sacred secular divide with time as well. Again, there's not just one time in, that is, is holy and one time that is not holy. Jesus has ended that divide. Our work time becomes part of our worship time. Our downtime becomes part of our devotion time. So there are no holy months or holy weeks. All of our days should be spent in devotion to God. But as I said, with all revolutions come counter-revolutions. The first counter-revolution was to try and bring back holy places. The languages of the holy places has crept back into the church. Churches are set out like temples. With veils and altars and sanctuaries. They're laid out east to west, like the tabernacle and the temple. Even in evangelical circles, though, we can find this. 
We name things, we name churches like Bethel, which means house of God. Now the people are in the Bible, aren't they? But the building is not. Could be potentially confusing there. I know of a church above the doors where it says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. As though the doors to the church building were the doors to the temple. It's worth thinking these things through as we acquire a new building. That's probably not a good thing to stick over the door. We are not building a new temple, if you like, by buying a building. People will pressure us to consecrate the building, but we're not going to do that. Because there are no holy spaces anymore. We can worship God anywhere. The second counter-revolution that came in was holy time. Again, this has been reintroduced into the church. Holy days, holy seasons. Here we are in Lent, which culminates in Holy Week. There are saints' days and special festivals. But Jesus' worship revolution means that every day is holy. Every day is set apart from him. Now, days and seasons can be useful for us. For example, to set apart a day in the week to meet is sensible and biblical. Christmas, while not a holy day, is a useful time to remember Christ coming to earth and to explain that to other people. We probably wouldn't invent it, but while it's there, it's useful. What we mustn't do is fall into the trap of thinking that certain days are more special than any other days. Jesus' worship revolution means every day is set apart for God. But we as evangelicals can fall into that trap as well. You might be thinking of other groups there, but think about ourselves. I remember thinking as a younger Christian, oh, I mustn't mustn't sin today. It's a Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. But as a matter of fact, Monday is the Lord's Day and Tuesday is the Lord's Day. In that he is just as much Lord on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and the rest of the days of the week, as he is on a Sunday. As I say, it makes sense to have a day set apart. It makes sense to have a day of rest. But actually, we should be worshipping God every day, not just on a Sunday. We should be worshipping God in every place, not just in a so-called place of worship. Luther sums this up as only Luther can, Martin Luther. He says, the worship of God should be free at table, in private rooms, downstairs, upstairs, at home, abroad, in all places, by all people, at all times. And then in typical Martin Luther fashion, he finishes with, whoever tells you anything else is lying as badly as the Pope and the devil himself. (laughs) There you go, Martin Luther for you. But that's what he's saying, every day, in all places, in all times, we can worship God. But that leaves us with two questions, really. The first one is then why do we gather? If we can worship anywhere and at any time, why do we gather together in a place at a certain time? Well, we've got a specific week answering that question, why we gather as Christians. But we should gather, but it's not specifically to worship. The New Testament doesn't talk about Christians gathering to worship, but it does talk about Christians gathering to do many, many things. The second question that it raises in my head is, well, what was the whole temple thing about then anyway? If Jesus is just sweeping this aside, what was it all about? Well, there is still one place that we go to worship. But it's not the old temple, it's a new temple, not built with hands. 
And we'll find it in verses 22 to 26. Have a look with me at verse 22 and onwards. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What matters is not where you worship, but how you worship. And what matters is that we worship in spirit and in truth. That is what we worship in, in spirit and in truth. Now the debate about the meaning of this verse is almost as old as the verse itself. There are three main positions on it. Some have taken it to do with God. So if we do that, we take it to be that it's with the Holy Spirit. And then the truth is the Son, who describes himself as the truth in John's Gospel. So the force of it would be like this. Worship the Father in the Spirit and the Son. The second way that people have taken it is to do with the manner in which we worship. This is uh, to do with the nature of worship, which should be done spiritually, not physically and outwardly. And truthful in line with God's word. So the force of it would be worship the Father inwardly and biblically. The third position, people have taken it to do with ourselves, our response. That is to do with the different aspects of worship. That we worship with our spirit and with our mind which deals with the truth. So the force of it is worship the Father with head and heart. Now the problem with all the takes on these verses is that they're all true, aren't they? We should worship the Father through the Spirit and the Son. We should worship God inwardly and in line with the Bible. We should worship him with heart and head. The thing is though that these things are not so different and so far away from each other as they first seem. Let's look at these things separately. First, the Spirit. What does it mean to worship in Spirit? John Calvin writes this. The worship of God is said to consist in the spirit because it is nothing else than that inward faith of the heart which produces prayer and next purity of conscience and self-denial that we may be dedicated to obedience to God as holy sacrifices. For John Calvin, spirit meant inward faith in the heart. That's our spirit. And yet we know, don't we, that that faith is a gift of the spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. Our spirits are awakened and animated by the Holy Spirit. Our inward response to God is a spiritual response to God in both senses. And it is a heart response. I would point out at this point, though, the Holy Spirit is not just to do with our emotions and our heart, but our minds as well. We'll see that in a few moments' time. What this means, though, is that it's possible to worship God without really worshipping God. What I mean by that is that we can engage our actions without engaging our hearts. We can go through the motions without really worshipping God at all, if it's not engaging our heart. Jesus talks to the, uh, to the masters of this, the Pharisees. He says this, Matthew 15, uh, 7 to 9. You hypocrites, well does Isaiah prophesy of you when he said... This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
They honour God with their lips, but their hearts are somewhere else. And so they worship God in vain. They also do it without the truth, which we'll see in a minute. So I want to ask us the question this morning, do we worship God in vain? Do we no longer do it as a response to God, but through habit or convention? Do we just go through the motions? Do we not feel anything for God anymore? Friend, if that's you, may I make a suggestion? There are two two dangers. The first one is hypocrisy. That one basically says, well, if you don't feel it, just pretend. Don't make a fuss. Keep your head down. It'll blow over. It's a bit like me when I know I've got a medical problem. The last place I want to go is the doctor. I just want to ignore it and hope that it goes away. But it never works, does it? So that's the first danger with this. If we don't feel it, we can just fall into hypocrisy. The second danger, though, is that we stop worshipping. I've seen this happen, too, with tragic consequences. I'll worship when I feel it, but then they never feel it. Remember, this is not just singing. This is about the whole of our life, isn't it? Our hearts grow colder, not warmer, as we move further away from God. So what should we do? Well, we need to really focus on the heart, don't we? If the heart there is the problem, we need to focus on that. And to do that, we need to look at the second part of what Jesus talks about. We should worship in spirit, but the two go together, spirit and in truth. Remember, one of the ways of thinking about this was as the sun, the other was as the Bible, the other was as the mind or the intellect. But these three fit together wonderfully, as they're all to do with the revelation of God. Indeed, the first two, Jesus and the Bible, share the title of the word of God. And the word in Greek for that is logos, which has to do with the mind. It's where we get our word logical from. If we want to worship the Father, we must do it through the Son. So this is what Don Carson says. This is first and foremost a way of saying we must worship God by means of Christ. In him the reality has dawned and the shadows are being swept away. So we do this through the Son. But if we want to worship the Father through the Son, we must do so according to his word. We can't just make up how we respond to God. We must look into his word to find out. So here's Bob Coughlin, who writes uh, as a hymn writer. We cannot worship God apart from his word. It defines, directs, and inspires our worship. Scripture provides doctrinal fuel for our emotional fire. You see, the word of God begins to sort out the heart problem. It gives us fuel for our fire. And if we want to worship the Father through the Son, we must do so according to his word, engaging our minds as well as our emotions. The worship of God must always be based on truth and engage the mind. So John Piper says this, True worship combines heart and head, emotion and thought, affection and reflection, doxology and theology. We can't just bypass the mind in worship. We must engage the mind too. The mind is not the enemy of worship. It's an essential part of our worship. So it's possible then, if we bypass the truth, it's possible to worship God in vain here too. No matter how sincere or vibrant our worship might seem, if it's not based on the truth, 
It's in vain. So again, Matthew 15, 7-9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They've moved on from God's word to man-made rules, these commandments of men. Paul talks about the Jews of his day as having a zeal without knowledge, which ultimately led them to worship God in vain. If we won't understand, if we won't listen to what God says about how to worship Him, then we haven't understood who God is. True worship must deal with facts, not just with feelings. But that too has to do with the Spirit, doesn't it? The Spirit not only inflames our emotions, He illuminates the Word. He reveals the truth to us. So that means that emotions are not just at the realm of the Spirit either, actually. The Son is involved too. Christ can affect our emotions. But when our spirit is affected, when our emotions are truly inflamed by the Holy Spirit, it's only ever a response to the truth. The fire of the Spirit produces heat and light. The two go together. So if we are feeling cold, if we're feeling far away from God, go towards the light. Even if you feel little desire to go, go to the light. If we want the heat of true worship, we must have the true light of the word that points us to Christ. And that was the Samaritan woman's problem, wasn't it? Have a look again at verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. To truly worship God, we need to know God. And the only way to know God is through Jesus revealed in his word. He is the one place that we go. He was what the temple was pointing forward to. He is the one place where we meet with God, greater than either temple. She didn't accept that fact at this point. But Jesus would show her the truth. Jesus revealed himself to her. He's quite frank and open about it. Look at verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. If we want to worship God rightly, we have to do it through Jesus. So go to Jesus in his word. If you want worship that burns brightly, go to Jesus in his word, which after all is the sword of the spirit. Don't focus on worship or on your emotion. Focus on Christ. Now, there have been some counter-revolutions here too. Some taking out scripture and Christ and focusing on emotion and experience. The excesses of sometimes of the charismatic movement. Some taking out the spirit's role in emotion altogether as though emotion was a bad thing. The excesses sometimes of, for better word, the reformed movement. But the true worship of God involves both son and spirit. It involves both mind and heart. The intellect and emotions all brought together to the glory of God. And if you think about that, that really is a worship revolution, isn't it? So what is life really all about? Well, if it's all about worship, then these are its foundations. It's not where you are, but how you worship. It's not mere outward actions, but something inward and spirit-driven. 
based on truth saturated, Jesus directed truths. And all this, all this going on in our hearts and our minds will result in action. What action? Well, that's what we're going to look at next week. So let's pray that God would help us as we take this all in and build on this in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would heed the lessons of the passage that we've been reading. Father, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, help us not to go uh, too far one way or too far the other way, neglecting spirit or truth, but help us to worship you uh, both uh, with our minds and with our hearts in all that we do, not just in our singing, but in our day-to-day responses to you. Help us to live each day for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.